With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sometimes, though, we, I always say that every every week. This is a tough topic. This is a tough topic. Today's kind of a tough topic, but it's not really because it's a successful uh, kind of a, a topic that we're going to talk about. Our guest is Marilyn McLean, who is renowned for her advocacy and for her authorship and for uh, her work in the area of domestic violence and protective moms. And Marilyn, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Heather, and it's a pleasure to be on your show. Absolutely. Well, and this is not your first rodeo with the show, and uh, you've been here before a couple times. And um, it's a pleasure to have you back again. This time, though, we're not going to be talking specifically about an issue. What we're going to be talking about is your book, because you have written a book. Uh, uh, well, enough about me. Tell us the name of your book and what what it's about. Uh, the book is called Prosecuted But Not Silenced courtroom reform for sexually abused children and I started writing this book over 20 years ago and it's really an educational tool for judges, lawyers, social workers, psychologists, GALs, anybody involved in the court system uh, that are dealing with child sexual abuse cases or abuse cases and domestic violence. Okay now as soon as you say it's for courts I have to be all cynical and jaded here because in my experience, and I, I, I know, go ahead and send me the emails, I know, but in my experience, not too many judges, court personnel are interested in doing a lot of reading uh, from uh, uh, out here in, in the, the boonies uh, about what needs to happen or what has happened in the court uh, realm. Has that been your experience? Absolutely. It's, it's critical and it has to happen where we need more training, education. They need to be aware. Um, this is like the bystander approach, too, is that we need everybody involved because this is affecting all of society and all of our children. Um, it might not be happening in your home, but it is happening somewhere. And there's, so many, there's thousands of these cases where children are not being protected in our courts. And that is maybe just not lack of education. Um, it, it goes way back to patriarchal times, but also we need to get together and make a difference. And these judges, lawyers, psychologists, social workers, should be reading my book. And I'm not doing that to sell my book. Um, <laughs> I, I am doing that because I have been at this trying to make a difference and help children out there that are not being protected and destroying their lives. 
Yeah. Well, and there's a couple of reasons that we want to talk about your book. One is that there are, as you pointed out, thousands of situations out there. There are thousands of people who have stories about what needs to be done and what has been done incorrectly. And perhaps there are some stories about what's been done correctly that we could all learn from. And yet it is extremely difficult um, to get this to, to create a work like this and then to get it published and uh, taken seriously. So we're going to talk about that. But before we do, I want to talk a little bit about your background. What led you to write this book? I actually, I just want to preface with, I came from a very great family background, um, wonderful family, so a great childhood. And I ended up marrying a man who was a domestic abuser and then went on to abuse my child. Now, this happens in most of these cases where there's usually domestic violence first that moves on to the abuse of children, not necessarily in all cases, but it does happen. And I started writing my book. I had divorced uh, my daughter's father when she was six months old. I had been married for eight years in, as I said, an abusive relationship, not knowing the signs that women know today and have all the information out there, the red flags to look for, because I thought women that were in domestic violence were beaten to death and black eyes and whatnot. That wasn't the time I did get physical abuse or did have, but more the emotional abuse. And so when I saw that the red flags, I didn't see the red flags because they weren't there in my day, but they are today. And I really want the young women to watch for those those red flags and they are there for them to, to you know, investigate and know what they're getting into when they get into relationships. That's very critical. But um, I started writing my book when my daughter was two years old. And honestly, um, I had no clue what I was up against or what I was in, but um, the father sexually abused her. And he started abusing her on his visitations, and he had limited visitation because I, I was so custodian parent. So a lot of these cases will be custody cases. Mine wasn't a custody case, but it doesn't matter. It was turned into a custody case. So my little girl was sexually abused, and um, I was fighting the system with everything I had, and I couldn't believe nobody was protecting my child. I mean, this was a child who was articulate, um, demonstrated the abuse. Um, this went on for years. I mean, it wasn't a one-time incident uh, up until the age of four and a half. By that point, she had physical evidence and top doctors in the state of Colorado stating she was being sexually abused by the Child Advocacy and Protection Team and police reports and doctor's reports, and still I could not protect my child. So when I saw the system failing like that, I started writing. And I started writing for two reasons. I thought the possibility of him killing me and my daughter never knowing the truth or the fact that I emotionally wouldn't be able to get through this because it really um, depletes and kills these mothers that are going through this. There's nothing worse than to have your child ripped out of your arms and handed over to an abuser. So... um, I documented, and I documented everything. I was in this for 10 years of fighting for my daughter, and at the age of four and a half, I lost her to the father completely, even after all these court cases and all the evidence, which the courts can I'm going to interrupt you right here, Marilyn, because I think it's important for our listeners to understand. I think that a great number of people, including people that I know who know that, you know, I'm interested in this field and who are, in fact, pretty well informed and, you know, uh, pretty with it in so many areas, and yet I am consistently hearing, well, there must have been something wrong with her if they took away her kid. There must have been something wrong. Yeah, that's really amazing because um, I deal with this every day. As you know, Heather, I have calls coming in from all across the nation, every single state, 
um, internationally as well. But um, and there's thousands like we've we've discussed before. So all these cases, these are good, loving mothers. They're educated. They're from every walk of life. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor or a lawyer. If you're it doesn't matter where you're coming from. They're losing their children when they go into family court to try to protect them. It doesn't matter so, how much money you have. It doesn't. It just takes no, a little it doesn't longer matter where you work your way from. all the way through it. Doesn't matter how successful. Nope, nothing. Yep. I I thought. I want to you know, give you I an example, uh, uh, Marilee, of of what I'm talking about. I I have a friend who actually worked for years, decades in the courts, and she worked with um, uh, children in the courts, and. She called me one day and said, well, I have a neighbor, um, an older woman, and her daughter just moved in with her. But her daughter is from another state, and she just lost custody of her kids in this other state. And I went, ooh, yeah, well, that happens. And I'm immediately thinking, okay, the woman has no money. That's why she's moving back with her mother. And my friend said, well, why, if she's fighting for her kids, why is she in this state? Why didn't she stay where where her kids are? And I said, well, maybe she doesn't have money anymore. And my friend said, well, if they were my children, I would not be moving to another state if they were still there. I would fight and fight and fight, and I'd stay there. And I thought, I'll bet you this mother said the same thing. You know, uh, it seems right. like we're uh, so well, lots judgmental. Of yeah, yeah that's a mental I, I mean, and, and it, so it astounds me that people can can be that judgmental, uh, you know, about a mom who's going through this. I think we're very naive. How likely Well, is I don't it? think most people, Heather, can, can comprehend what this is like to go through. And really, the women going through it, most of them that I've known back in my time didn't even make it through it. I mean, they went in the underground. Uh, they ended up, I have one mother that I'm still in contact with that's bedridden and got, got sick. So, And this is a strong woman. This wasn't some you know, push me over kind of mom. She was fighting with everything she had. I watched them lose everything, lose their children, obviously. So, no, it doesn't matter where they're coming from. And and the fact that I had a mom that just recently moved to another state in order to regroup because once you get in the system and they've gone against you in that state and in that county, you don't get out of it. It's it's like a, a vicious cycle. And... um so some of the times when the moms have moved to another state and then have to come back in to fight, that keeps that father from having that control of that mother. Because a lot of this is about control. Um, once you know, you've divorced that abuser, what a better way to continue the abuse than to continue to abuse the mother and, and then to abuse the mother through her children. So that's part of that cycle. But I still say, yeah, you can't judge these moms. I have I, I to this day, even though I went through this, I mean, I deal with it on a professional level now, and I and I speak and, and testify and do everything I can to get this information out there, and my heart is broken every single day, every time I hear another story, and they're identical. They're really, you know, maybe not identical, but they're so similar of what's happening. How could this continue to happen? I was in this 30 years ago. And here we are in 2018, and this is still going on, and it's in epidemic numbers. It's not just a little bit. It's unbelievable how many women are going through this and their children. Well, you know, Marilee, I was talking to you were talking about the process, that as you go through the process, how it beats down the protective mom. And it's like if she may, it, it's, it's like a double-edged sword, because if the mom 
fights with everything she's worth and she becomes emotional, then she's just a crazy lady and she gets pegged a crazy lady. And no wonder her husband wants the children because she's a crazy lady. But if she doesn't fight for everything she's worth, if she doesn't get emotional, and then there's something wrong with her. She's just this ice right. lady that doesn't apparently care about her ch- I mean, it seems like there's no winning for a woman who goes to court. Now, I know we're going to be getting calls or getting emails from people who say, oh, well, I'm a man, and blah, da 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 We're talking really about cases only where there is a dispute over custody in, in, in a lot of these cases. Um, and then, as you were talking, Marilee, when you, you discovered there was no dispute over custody, but then when you discovered what was going on, then there was a dispute, and that's where, you know, th- that's where you lose. Am I interpreting that correctly? You're you're very right, and and the thing, Heather, is is that this is about abuse. This is not about a parent alienating another parent. This isn't. Um, I, I can go into the parental alienation syndrome. I won't right now. But what I'm saying to you is, these cases are about abuse. This isn't about you know he said she said or a good you know. What I get so upset about is where they say fifty fifty. You know, no matter if you're a bad father or a bad mother, you deserve 50%. No, you do not. If you have raped no. a child or abused a child and you're a domestic violence abuser, you don't deserve to have rights to that child and get that 50%. Because until that child is safe, the safety of the child comes first. And until that child is safe but and can protect doesn't... themselves against that abuser, they should not be around him at all. We treat, in, in courts, we treat children as if, we're, like they're furniture. Who has a right well, to yeah. sat, sit in that Shout chair, okay? Yeah. And and does it matter right. if the one who's sitting in the chair is 500 pounds and might crush it? No. You have a right to your half of the chair, that's that. You know, and it, it just seems so inhumane to me, the way courts operate um, when it comes it to child custody. If their human rights and civil rights are denied, the children as well as the mother or the protective parent per se. And, you know, it, it goes on and on. If if you're a child and you're caught up in that situation, I think, even for my own child, abuse of her father was horrific and she's still going through that damage. But the abuse of the system, on the other hand, where they took her from her mom and her grandparents and her family and her friends and isolated her and years and years of that where, you know, the trauma of doing that to a child on top of the rape is inconceivable. And that is why all these children, you know, that are being abused and then forced to live with their abuser, when a child says, who are the good people? Who are the bad people? You know, when a child is told policemen, doctors, social workers, psychologists, GALs, um, family, friends, and nobody protects her, including her mother can't protect her, what kind of a message do you think we're giving our children? And what kind of trauma is that for later in life? Yeah, it's 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 egregious. It's really egregious. Now, um, okay, so, you know, we've kind of established, you know, what's going on here. And, again, this doesn't happen in every case. You know, I mean, I think I'm trying to remember the statistic. It's something about 75, 80%, I think it's closer to 80% of child custody mm-hmm. issues are resolved without going to court. But there's that 20% where right. something egregious is going on, something is bad going on. And well, it's the abuse cases. 
Right. The contested custody cases are usually abuse cases. Most parents try to do what's right by their children. Even if they're not getting along and they're getting a divorce, they care about their children so much and they love them so much that it may be a stay-at-home father that does a better job with that child. It may be the mother that needs to be with that, that child or those children. So, so they work it out because they're doing what's best for their children. That is not the case with these cases. And usually when they're contested custody cases, there's abuse going on. And there's statistics. I mean, there's new statistics out that Joan Myers just did. And it will show, especially with sexual abuse cases, these children are forced to go with their abuser up to 80% of the time, 81%. That's huge. What are we, you know, you, well, it, you can't it's, even... it's unconscionable. I mean, it's just unconscionable. It seems to me, I'm, I try to put myself in the position of the, the judge, okay? She says the child was abused. Okay, I've got documentation from psychologists and physicians that the child has been assaulted or physically abused or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I go, okay, but the child says it's daddy, but we don't know for sure it's daddy. Maybe mommy just told her to say it was daddy. So we don't kind of we we just kind of not don't trust mommy. So what we're going to do is we're going to give the child to daddy and punish mommy. How can you do that? If there's any question whatsoever that there might be abuse by that person, whether it's mommy or daddy, well, what, can't I think, you I think the safety of the child to... first, and I, right, right, and that's the shocking part because I can't comprehend. I, I mean, if I have been an isolated case and this has only happened to me and and my daughter and what we went through, I'd say, well, it was just an unfair thing in the system and they just didn't get it and blah, blah, blah. No, that is not the case. So this is a huge problem. And and the evidence is not coming out in these hearings. That's part of the problem because family court is not an evidentiary hearing. So these judges don't have to bring this evidence in. And even when it does come in, and this isn't just one case. The judges are throwing out that evidence. They're not even looking at it. If it's domestic violence, it's played down. If it's if it's child abuse, it's it's ignored. And and how you you can't even knowing this stuff and knowing how much this is happening to try to explain it to society out there how much it's happening and that judges could actually ignore evidence and you have custody evaluators that are coming in that are not really trained in child abuse. They're not investigators. They don't understand. You know, they might know of a child that's been abused or they might do psychological tests, but they, they don't, you know, they're not doing the real investigation to see where these children, what this child is going through. And I, I prefer the cases go to the police department first, even though they make mistakes too. But the bottom line is, the safety of the child. If you had any doubt in your mind and you thought, I mean, with all the evidence that's coming in, how can you ignore that evidence or go, not happening, and let's give that child to the father? Because the mother is fighting the abuse issue. I just, I still am dumbfounded by it. Is it myth? Is it vindictive? Well, and at, at the risk of of sounding like, you know, the last surviving 1970s feminist, I will say I it does smack <laughs> Of paternalism. I mean, it it uh, it, it yeah. just, you know, if if he says it, well, it's probably true. If she says it, she must be lying through her teeth. I mean, I have often said well, that it seems to me that. that when you are dealing with family court, well, almost any court, I, I'm I'm more familiar with family court. It's like if a woman says something, they're they're thinking there's a fifty fifty chance she's lying through her teeth, when in fact. 
So all the studies that I've seen, and I think this is substantiated, shows that, yeah, there's a tiny, tiny number of people who lie in court. I think it's like less than 3%. And it's the same for right. men and women. There's a, you know, and yeah. yet there's this presumption. of women, but they also have studies that show that men um, lie more than women. But, but there is that 2%, but 2% is nothing when you have 98% of the children out there that are being raped or forced to live without abuser. So, yes, it is. I believe it's patriarchal in society. I think we're still in that. When when women go out there and we're fighting for equal pay and equal this and equal, and I want to say equal, are you? We're not even close to equal if we can't keep our children safe. And and it is like a male entitlement thing. Just because you're a father doesn't mean you have all the rights to that child. It just doesn't. I know you know it's got that pendulum has swung back and forth. Believe me. It's the opposite direction of what should be happening. Well, and you mentioned the uh, 50-50 assumption, and that bothers me. I think I might have told you this. Uh, a few years ago, I decided I was going to go through the training in our county for guardians ad litem. And we happen to mm-hmm. live, I happen to live, in a county that is doing pretty well and has been doing pretty well in domestic violence situations. And yet... That's right. In the training, in the three-day training that I took to be a GAL, they had a couple of presenters on domestic violence, one of whom I thought was pretty good. The other was maybe dated information. Um, And then everything else was, yeah, okay, this goes on in a small number of cases. But meanwhile, you have to assume that 50-50, mom and dad, 50-50-50. And I'm thinking, no. You can't assume that when you look at the studies that show that the ones who go for the guardian ad litem are not 50-50. They're not the normal folks. They're not the the ones that can, you know, it's the ones where there is, as you pointed out, where there is abuse going on. So if you have this these cases where you've got abuse going on, the likelihood is extremely high that abuse is going on, and then you make the assumption that either parent has a 50-50 shot of being the best parent for this child, I mean, how the sad part of that, you're missing a point because when that is the 50-50, they're not looking at that. They're looking at the abuse they ignore. So obviously the parent that is bringing the abuse forward is losing that child. So that's even worse. It's not like 50-50, we're going to try and give parents 50-50. That looks great on paper, but in reality, if it's an abuser, if that parent is an abuser, as I said earlier in the conversation, they, they've lost that right to that child until that child's old enough to protect themselves. That's the way, you know, I, I just can't imagine. I was just at um, the launching of my book, and there was a gentleman there. He was probably 67 from Australia. He was launching a book also. And um, he came from a domestic violence home, and he was raped, and he was very successful, rugby player out of Australia, nice-looking man. He says, uh, tells his story, you know, goes through his launch. And when he gets done, I kid you not, he sat down at the table, his face turned as red as a beet, and he sobbed like a baby uncontrollably. And I immediately got up to go over and hold him. And you know what it is? We can sit here and say this is okay when we have 67-year-old men sobbing like a baby. You know, I, I just can't comprehend our system continuing to fail when we know what this does to children and we know what it causes for adults, those children as they become adults, the suicide rate, the drug addiction, the alcoholism, all PTSD, anxiety, we can go on and on and on. And yet 
as a society, we don't want to look at this issue. It's one of the number one issues. As far as I'm concerned, you know, we look at sexual assault now, barely, but we are looking at it, and, and you know, rape and campus rape and all this. What about our children, our number one people that have no protection out there? And we cannot look at this issue. I have been trying to get the media on this. Although I had the media in my case heavy, they haven't covered this. I am trying to get them to cover other mothers' cases and to cover what's going on out there nationally. And this needs to be covered every day, just like the immigration thing or just like anything that finally brings things to society's attention. And that has not happened. No. And the courts seem to be pretty sacrosanct. I mean, let's face it, there are very few repercussions for a judge or a court or a GAL who does something that's not a great job. There's very little that can be done about it. In egregious cases, they can they can bring, you know, I mean, they have some sort of panel where you can make a complaint about the judge. But realistically, very little happens. I mean, we can talk about a couple of really, you know, notorious cases in this country over the last couple of years. I'm thinking of Montana and Michigan, where judges were mm-hmm. – uh, complained about because of their egregious, I keep using that word, but uh, their egregious behavior in these, in this arena, and they got their hands slapped and not a sing- they didn't lose their job. So, I mean, what, you can't sue. They're protected from lawsuits. Yeah, I, you so, know, it very, very rarely happens that a judge gets moved from the bench, and I think that's what really needs to happen. Um, it takes a bunch of attorneys and a lot of news media. It, like in my case, my judge was removed from the bench. In the history of Colorado, only two judges have been removed from the bench, which was huge. But that is unheard of. They just don't remove them from the bench. And what we have are judges that are in family court for two years, and they rotate. So they really don't get domestic violence and child abuse. They don't understand a sociopath or a narcissist or a psychopath, which I believe those behaviors are in these people. If it's not one of them, it's all three of them. And until they understand that behavior and they understand when a woman comes into court, I'm not saying there aren't women narcissists, sociopaths, or psychopaths. There are. And I'm not saying there are not women abusers. There are. But in the studies and in the proof and in the research, it's mostly men that are doing the raping. It's mostly men that are domestic abusers. Yes, there are women, but the, I want to go with percentages because it's so high with the men, that's where we have to look. And I'm not judging good men out there. We need all the good men to stand up and come forward and fight with us because this is their children too. And and if we don't get a handle on this, we're just turning generations and generations of children over to a study research, which we know, and we can go into that later if you'd like, but but the adverse childhood experiences and how this really affects society. Yeah. Well, and we've had Dr. Vincent Flitty on the show talking about, you know, the long-term effects that these mm-hmm. childhood traumas have on people. Um, we've also had representatives, and I've been racking my brain trying to remember the name of the organization, perhaps you remember it, but the adult children who were um, given to uh, a parent who was abusive. Um, they Finally, they have their own organization to try and support them and everything. Oh, yeah, I yeah. think that's um, great. Yeah. I yeah, you're not thinking of it either. I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. And so, you know, it's starting to come to light. But one of the things that I've seen, you know, as as kind of a, an investigative journalist, if you will, um, where I have tried to track down cases, there was one a particular one in Washington State where a girl was given to full custody to the dad, uh, despite allegations and uh, of um, sexual abuse. And the judge said, well, you know, obviously there has been sexual abuse, but there is no proof that it was, in fact, the dad who did it. Um, And so because mom, uh, you know, had the nerve to bring these accusations against dad and she didn't, you know, and she didn't bring those accusations up until she filed for divorce. Well, duh. Right. I mean. Did she know? I mean, a lot of times oh, okay. the children don't talk until there's a divorce because that's when they feel safe. Um, a lot of times it's with that safe parent that they tell because they don't tell while that parent is in the home. So that does come up after a divorce a lot. And um, yeah. it's a lot more than people want to believe. It's not your boogeyman um, hiding behind a bush that's doing this. This is within the family. Most of our child abuse is coming within the family happening, excuse me, with uh, that's another part of this whole thing. I was thinking Vincent Paletti, um, uh, whatever, uh, gave a, 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 what do you call that on the back of my book? He wrote uh, a notably insightful book, a needed uh, source of understanding and help as the author speaks openly of how her husband's incest victimization of their child was repeatedly mishandled in court, affecting their lives for years and possibly a lifetime. So, I mean, you know, he gets this stuff. There's so many people yep. that understand what's going on. So really what it is, and yet it's social the decision change. makers, i.e. the judges, seem mm-hmm. to be insulated from all of this research. And I can't figure it out. And, um, you know, I mean, as a layperson, I don't go to court every day. I don't hang out in courtrooms and everything. So when I see judges making these decisions, I think, really? Really? You, you didn't read this study? You didn't? And yet... It, and so it befuddles me that these judges seem to be so remote from all of this other stuff, you know, the, the, these facts, these studies. I mean, it it seems like they are not even exposed to it unless they choose to be exposed to it. Um, and, and they I don't think want it's to. Just, you, have to you have to figure that, too. It's they're in there and they're thinking, you know, they don't really want to handle these cases. And, and you know, that's not the point. They get these cases. They need to be trained to handle these cases. Do we have a separate court for them? Do we need to go, we can't do it. A lot of these cases can't be prosecuted, as we've discussed before, in criminal court because you have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, reasonable, reasonable doubt. And yet in family court, you know, they, they don't want to hear this stuff. And if we if can't get them into, into the criminal court, you know, we've talked about having a, a separate court with a jury trial with trained judges and trained evaluators going in there because this can't be just anybody. I remember a GAL, actually she was one of my GALs, but she said... A guardian ad litem, which is supposed to be, yeah. which is appointed or hired guardian by the court to represent the child. Yeah. Right, right. And and so this guardian ad litem stated, if the father has a duty, he needs to come forward with it. But you need to understand, if you have done this, I will not that child away from you, I believe she still needs to be in your life. You still need to have custody. Why do they say that? I, I, I mean, I, I know, just where, read where that is this notion oh, that you can be gosh. a horrible, awful person who does horrible, awful things to your child, and yet your child still needs your presence in their life? Well, I mean, I have not seen Why any psychological studies 
supporting that theory, and yet that seems to be absolutely gospel when it comes to child custody. Well, and, and that's the thing. That's what we really need to get to is that if you're not a competent parent and you're abusing a child and you know, there's evidence of that abuse. And, and sometimes there, there is evidence. There's always evidence. And, the, and these children do talk. So the, the bottom line is, why do they need, you know, just because they're the yep. father or, or whatever, they have that right as, as a patriarchal society, no entitlement, you name it. What is it that it's so important for that person to be in that child's life? If the child's 17 or 18 and they're not controlled by that person and they can protect themselves, you know, from being raped, released, or, you know, whatever, but as a child is little, how do they control what's going to happen to them? How do they say, you can't do that to me, Daddy? You know, they they do do that, but that doesn't matter. They, they're they dealing with an adult. It's it's unreal to me. It's, it's, a, I still, it's an amazing yeah, situation. Yeah. I want to merely talk about your book. Tell us a little bit about your book. How is it structured? What what kinds of chapters do you have in there? What will I find when I read your book? Um, you know, I've added a lot of stuff different. Um, it's still got the emotional story in it, but I've got a lot more research and legal to it and added some extra chapters. So um, it kind of it, it explains what's happening in these cases. So my mind's case study, and I did that on purpose, as I did before, because um, – it absolutely reveals what's going on. And so one of the reasons is, is that mothers that are going through this get a hold of this book, which I hope they do before they end up in this situation, is that it, they won't be so blindsided by what's going on because you can't imagine that the things that go on do. And what I did is if you're reading something in here and you go, oh, that couldn't happen, and then I say go to Appendix A and there's the police report or the doctor's report or the judge's order, so it verifies everything that's happening, plus it has the top researchers and, and uh, psychologists and people that have been involved in this for a long time, information at the back. So it's just an educational tool, but, um, you know, it's, uh, I, I mean, most people read it in two to three days because they just don't put it down because they can't believe what they're reading. And this puts it in perspective, what's going on. It's, it really is an astonishing uh, situation. So your book starts out, and you talk about your daughter's experience. Um, and so did you have your your daughter's cooperation in putting the story down on paper? Did she help? Did she participate? I started how did, how did... writing it. No. I started writing it when she was two, like I said, because I wasn't sure how I was going to get through this. And I was shocked at what the system was doing. Now. So I wanted it to happen. And now she's an adult. And when she was little, I told her I was writing this book. She knew all along I was writing it. So it took like 20 years. I documented everything, but I didn't put it out there until she was older. And I told her I was going, we were really close. And um, even through the separation, I mean, she hung on to me. So that's very unusual because that bond was not broken because I stayed in those supervised visits. I had supervised visits for eight years and one hour a week in a little room, eight by 10 feet with her. So she hung on very tight. And, um, Today, she's having a very difficult time, you know. Uh, she was dissociative. She had to dissociate in order to get through this to survive it and survive the pain of everything. But when I told her I was putting the book out there, she says, you go for it, Mom. I just won't read it. But the last few chapters I have in the book are things that she's written, and it's incredible. She's an incredible writer and um, very, very deep. And so 
I believe her writings that I put in this last chapter, the last chapter, let me see what the, the title is. Um, I've got to find it one second, okay? But in that title, is meant for all the women out there fighting. I can't find it because I got all that research, but um, darn it. Take your time. Give me a minute. It's fine. Okay. Should have had it ready, I guess. <laughs> but yeah. I still can't find it. Um, but it's, it's, oh, there it is. Okay. It's when the warriors, let's see, how, oh, no, when the dreamers, protectors, and the warriors survive. And so what I put in that last chapter was kind of bringing the whole book around to helping the people that are going through it, the moms and the children that are going through it. And I told about my daughter, Amy, and this is one thing she wrote, and I'll just share that with um, your your people out there, the public. Um, let's see. I said we were as close as any mother and daughter could be possibly be, despite geographical distance between us and considering all the heartache and separation we had to endure. Amy has proven to be an incredible young woman, and she tells me her goal is to make a difference someday for children. She recently sent me a message stating, I went from a three- or four-year-old where everything stopped. I could not access my being until now. I am back. I can't believe it. A four-year-old soul and a 25-year-old body. She can dance, sing, swim. She has studied humanity and traveled the world, ending up by her true love by the sea, where she gets to be her true mermaid, loving her little kingdom by the sea. We did it, Mom. It is just the beginning of so much work to do, and I am ready. Thank you for always being on the journey with me, my number one supporter. I am real and solid in my body that is all mine. I have not felt my body in so long. The texture of my skin, the water on my scalp, nor have I seen my own shadow and I stop for no one. I am a butterfly that disappears just as soon as you can catch a glimpse. I am deep into my spirituality and let go of all that I thought was my existence. I can now access all my powers that have been locked away for so long. There is nothing that will get in my way now as long as I listen to my voice. I made it to the other side, Mom. Love you so much. And then there was one more message I'll share. It's, uh, another message was, your baby is alive and feels her beauty, everything that is around her. She just had a major detour. But she is who you always knew she would be. It just took some time. You are exactly who she picked to guide her in life. Keep doing what you're doing. She needs you to keep fighting, and it's 100% worth it. You're, you're creating a beautiful existence. I remember everything and have always been with you. Love you, Mama, and your beautiful soul. So this is to all the moms out there that have lost your children due to the courts not protecting your children. Please know that there is hope. So that's kind of what I did. And then, you know, she wrote this poem when she was 12, and, and this shows her dissociation. She says, I'm a dreamer. I'm a dreamer lost in the world of logic and order. I wonder how big the universe really is. I hear the tinkling of fairies everywhere. I see an open ocean filled with mermaids diving in and out of the waves. I'm a dreamer, lost in the world of logic and order. I pretend to glide in and out of the clouds with a flying unicorn. I feel that when I enter my world, everything is peaceful. I touch the barrier between the dream world and reality. I worry that someday my special world will collide with the real. I'm a dreamer, lost in the world of logic and order. I understand that my dreams might never come true. I say that my world will last forever. I'm a dreamer, and I'm on a star looking down at the world. I try to keep my two worlds from becoming one. I hope my special world will last, uh, will never end, for it is my salvation from the troubles in life. I'm a dreamer lost in the world of logic and order. So she wrote that when she was 12, and this is her coming full circle and back to the mermaid thing and everything. So she's just come full circle. But she's an incredible writer, and I just think that she, in her own right, at some point when she gets through this, will be helping a lot because she 
she sees the bigger picture of everything. Yeah. Not that all kids Well, don't, how, but, how many uh, years did she live with her father? Oh, the whole time. I lost her when she was four until she was 18. Oh, four I and a half. That. I lost her at four and a half until she was 18. I got her back when she was 12, and that was only because um, I, well, I had the CNN International News. CNN International News covered my case, and, and I got a gag order and a 30-day jail sentence for that, and I had lots of other news coverage. But I didn't stop because I'd already lost her. And I don't believe once these mothers have lost their children, you're very unlikely going to get them back. So go for it. You go for anything you can to get anything you can to get that child back. And, and I believe, in my case, the media helped me. If I hadn't had the media coverage, I probably would have never gotten her back. And um, that, that kept me, and that's what kept me from going to jail with the media because CNN was outside the door. Yeah. So uh, I think it's really important. But as important. you pointed out and, before, and, getting that media coverage is really a rarity. That's really unusual. Uh, well, I mean, the media doesn't seem to want well, to cover I mean, these was, situations. It was a 24-7 deal, and, I, and at that time, you never saw anything on sexual abuse. They didn't cover it at all. Today, you hear sexual abuse stories every day about this child being raped or this uh, sex trafficking or whatever. It's out there, heavy duty. And I think it is this issue that they don't want to touch. It's like, um, I'll give you an example. There was a federal judge who was a good friend of mine. I became friends with him through this. And he was retired, and I, would, I had to go pro se because I'd gone through everything I owned and lost my house and everything, and I'm bankrupt. And so um, I started talking to him. He started helping me file my motions. But what I did, Heather, is I didn't give him my whole story all at once or this happened and then this happened and that happened. You can't do that. As a mother, if you're going in to try to get the media, you give them bits and pieces because it's too overwhelming. I never gave everybody everything. I, I bring them in, bring them in give them that hook, and then just keep going from there little by little. With this federal judge, I, even though he was a judge and he was brilliant, I knew not to give him everything. I gave him little bits and pieces at a time until he got it. And when he got it, he really got it. So he helped me file a lot of my motions. I mean, I was turning in incredible work, and they're going, wow, how is she doing this? Well, I had a federal judge helping me. So I think that these moms, it, you have to be very articulate. You have to have everything documented. I always put a big black binder together like lawyers have, and I put all my motions in order of what had happened going to court, and I had everything documented, and I knew it in my head before I ever went in to talk to anybody. So if I went to talk to a senator or a congressman or the governor, I had everything in a row ready to go, your ducks in a row, so to speak. So when you get up, you get to those people, you're not mumbling and trying to figure out and you look hysterical or a little bit off. If you're articulate and you can get that story out right, they will take it. The news media would jump on this if we could get the moms to go to the media. And maybe I think it's going to have to take a bunch of moms coming together and, and like yeah, maybe right. 10 cases and say, you know, not just one case. That's what I've been trying to do is get a documentary going where, because I have a lot of footage of. Um, a rally I had at the Capitol here in Colorado back in 94 when the VALA Act passed. And that year the VALA Act passed, we thought I had taught, you know, Joan Pink, and I know you've heard about her, but she was really the guru in all this that understood gender bias and understood what was happening. And she was at the National Center for Domestic Violence, or National Center for Protective Parents is what it was called. And we put this rally on together, and we thought 
this grassroots effort. We had every media station there. I had full-page news coverage. Oh, my gosh, this is going to change everything. That was 1994, and we're in 2018, and nothing has really changed. That's the sad part. And the media hasn't taken a hold of this. So I'm really working that angle right now is to get the media coverage. Well, and when the media does take hold of it, um, they, they see it as, a, as an isolated case here or there. They do not see that this it's is not. really an epidemic an epidemic well, that's of why situation. I wanted to do the documentary showing, because I have such great footage. That's where I was getting to. I missed that point. But I have all this footage of, like, Joan Pennington and um, Louise Armstrong, who wrote the, the big feminist who wrote Kiss Daddy Goodnight. And Gloria Steinem. Anyway, it's Gloria Steinem. It's just good, good, solid information. So you put that out there, and then you show what's happened back when that was, 94, and here we are in 2018, and then you bring in 10 mothers' cases right now, solid cases. They have to be really solid. They have to have proof of everything, documented. I mean, absolutely, right down, whether they've had ex parte hearings, emergency hearings to remove the child from you. Um, they've ignored evidence of abuse, all those things where um, you go into court and it's not an evidentiary hearing. You have your human, right, uh, your human rights and your civil rights denied, so does your child, no due process. You take those cases, and I have thousands. So I would just take the top ten cases that I feel are really you know, solid, which most of them are solid. It would be hard to determine which ones to do. And just do that documentary with those ten cases and the footage that I have from the past and say, hey, society, this is what's happening. What are we going to do about it? And we're not going to change it overnight. This is social change. We need to make a difference and stop what's happening. And no more of these, not just the judges making this, because it's the GAL, the guardian of litems, it's the lawyers, oh, yeah. it's the therapists, the custody evaluators are making buku bucks, you know, um, doing evaluations up to $60,000 for an evaluation. Oh, yeah. Well, it is quite an industry. Uh, you know, I mean, anybody who has been caught up in this will attest that, you know, you're you're very lucky if you come out of it with any any of your savings intact because it is a costly, time-consuming, and debilitating process. Um, I think it's interesting um, that when people don't have the money, somehow their cases end quicker. Um, you know. Oh, yeah. I, I know. I've thought that too. I mean, I think they wait till you've been drained of all your money. I, I, like I would give an example, um, one of the last hearings I had, um, the, they want to seal the courtroom and they want to take the case number off the file so the media couldn't get to it because the media was outside the door. And they want to confiscate all my records at home. So that was a way to shut oh this my whole gosh. thing down. But they did And that? I got a gag. They, they, that's what they did. That's exactly. The, the judge said we can't take the case number off the file because the media would get it back. That wouldn't look good to the public. But um, that day, I was ordered to pay all child support, or child support higher than he paid, all attorney's fees, his included, all therapist fees. Pretty much just bankrupted me, you know, completely because I already got through hundreds of thousands. So, you know, and that was a way they wanted to confiscate my records. That just blew my mind. They were going to try and confiscate my records. So, yeah, that's the kind of things that go on behind these closed doors. And well, and that's I an interesting point, program. too, because I think that what we deal with on, in many of these situations with custody is it's a punishment. It's a punishment. Oh, yeah. Oh, mother. that was a punishing court. That's when I got the no, – I think I already had – I can't remember if I had a gag order then. I think I did. I don't I don't remember. Yeah, I think that's when I got the gag order was that day. And um 
that didn't stop me. And that's what I say to these moms. Don't let it stop you. If you've lost your child, don't let that gag order stop you. And, you know, the jail sentencing, you know, they are being gagged and jailed. Hundreds of moms are being gagged and jailed. Good, loving mothers. These aren't drug addicts or alcoholics or sick in any way. They're just good, loving mothers fighting with everything they've got to protect their children. Yeah. Well, and when they fight for everything they've got, then they're perceived as kind of wacko. Um, and they're not given credibility, and that becomes a vicious circle, a vicious cycle, um, because, uh, I mean, I was talking to a mother today, a protective mother today, who court personnel responded to her Facebook posting. She posted something about Oh, no, that happens all the time. They have to take their Facebook page down. If they put anything on Facebook related to their children or what's going on, they are ordered by the court to take that Facebook page down. It's, that, that's unreal to me. That is shocking. Well, and the gag order orders are just astounding to me. Well, a gag order I mean, it's, I mean, how can you gag somebody that, that gets freedom of speech? I mean, the fact that I went on CNN, at the time that I went on CNN, um, I guess I had five contempt citations. I'd never done anything wrong throughout my whole hearing or my court process until I lost. And once I lost, it was Katie bar the door for me. I, I, I wasn't going to stop at anything to protect my child. So I let them know that. And, and that's why I began lobbying in Washington, D.C. and had all the news coverage here locally and then the international news. I did not until 1994. So the local news came way before that when she was four and five. I didn't do that CNN piece until she was 10. So um, I believe in that. I, I, I think the media is crucial on this stuff. I think the more we hear from this state, it's in every state. So if we hear this state and every state hearing this happening, then they'll they'll get it. You know, it's just like I don't know. I I I'm very frustrated that that we haven't gotten there yet. That's all. I know. Um, so when we read your book, when I, I'm, um, I'm a mother in that particular situation, I get your book and I read it, how is that going to help me? Besides sharing the story and letting so, me know that I'm not alone, how is your book going to help me? Well, I, I've already gotten lots of um, messages or whatever from other mothers stating how much it helped them and it saved them in lots of situations. And I think what it is is because I was blindsided so many times this opens their eyes to what's coming or what will happen because they're pretty much identical, whether they have ex parte hearings, emergency hearings, whether the father's working behind the scenes with the professionals, whether he's, you know, the domestic abuser that is able to get control of the court system and all the things in there and the research and the legal, it just prepares them and it gives them that fight. When they, one of the things I noticed that I think is really strong in all this, and that's why I continue to speak, is because I'm not speaking on my case about my daughter and I or us as much as is to get out there to the other children and the other mothers. Obviously that's why I do this. It's it's in my it's my passion and I can't stand what I see going on. So when I spoke at the Battered Mothers Conference last May, um what I found was those the mothers are coming in from every state and they see me up there standing strong and speaking out about this issue and getting it out there and what I say. But really, I still die inside every day. There's lots of uh, flashbacks for me of what's happened every time I have to hear another mother's story. But what I do is give them hope because if I can make it through this, 
you can make it through this. And that's really important to have somebody have a voice out there. And I, you can't do anything to me when I speak now. There's nobody that can do anything when I speak about a mother's case or what I do. I have a voice. I have a voice for all the mothers. And I will continue to use my voice because I am aggressive and I'm not going to stop. Not that I'm aggressive. But I have the knowledge. I have the background. And I want to get so we get we can help these children and stop what's happening. I don't just think it's a children, Heather. I look at these mothers. I don't care what walk of life, like I told you, they're coming from. We're destroying women's lives, too. We're taking them out of the workforce. They're going to bed. They're becoming sick. You know, we want to talk about adverse childhood experiences. Look what's happening to these women. They're, a lot of them are finished. They don't make it through this. Yes, I agree with you. And I don't think that we talk too much about that. I think that, uh, you know, most of us who work in this, this, this field are reluctant to say how devastating emotionally, psychologically, and physically this kind of a situation is to women because it, uh, we don't want anybody to think, well, see, she's a wreck and that's why she lost her kids. Um, but it is a devastating experience for a mother to lose her children. And I don't understand. I've heard of some situations where dad has done some really egregious things. Some, I, I, I seem to be wedded to that word today. I'm sorry. Um, has done some really horrible <laughs> things, uh, even to the point of being in prison, and the courts will say, okay, well, you can have shared custody or you can have supervised custody. And yet it seems like when the hat is on the other side and the courts have decided that mom has done something terrible, it's like, okay, you just lose custody, period, the end. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's, there's studies on that, too. There's research that shows that women are punished at a much higher degree than men are for doing something wrong. And, and, and you know, I don't want to sound like I'm all against men and this is, you know, and, and I've, I've said before, yes, I'm a feminist, but, you know, um, we need those good men to support us, and I don't want to shut everybody off out there. But the bottom line is, you know, we know where, uh, you know, as I said earlier, where your rapes are coming from or your sexual assault, it's, it's, it's the men. It's starting with the boys. How are we raising our boys? The shootings are coming from boys, you know. So, so really, let's let's look at you know really legitimately. The fact is, it's mostly men, and so if we can't get control of this, we're not going to stop what's happening. And, and this is this is spun out of control already. Well, and you know, it goes back to that old saying about it only takes a few bad apples. You know, I mean, we're not talking about manhood. We're not talking about the male population. Right. We're talking about this. What we what we rounded off to the twenty percent um, that you know uh, in these divorce cases, those are the ones that are causing all these problems. You get, that means that there's eighty percent of fathers out there who are perfectly happy to do what they think is best for their children and to cooperate with the other parent and you know work something out. And you know somebody once said, I was probably somebody famous, but I can't recall who it was. who said that you know, the sign of a fair agreement is when everybody thinks that they got a little bit less than they should have. And I think that that's the case with most child custody situations that where they work it out. And everybody feels like, well, I should have gotten a little bit more, but in the interest of getting this worked out, we'll just go with it. But then you've got that little 20%, and that's where the control and the abuse and the, you know, that's where it all comes in. And so I, you know, certainly don't think that we're painting all manhood. I, I'm the mother of a young man. I, I, you know, most men are perfectly wonderful and very supportive, and they want their children to have a good experience with their mother. And I think most mothers want their, their kid to have a great experience with their dads. 
until dad is hurting them. Right. I mean, yeah, absolutely. So, um, okay, Marilee, first of all, tell us us where we can get your book. I'm assuming it's on Amazon. It is, and it's in any of your favorite bookstores. at Amazon, favorite bookstores, Barnes and Noble. There's several of them, so I don't know all the different bookstores. But and then also you can go to my website. I do have a lot of information there, which is just uh, I always do my three w www dot merrily m a r a l e e mclean is m c capital l e a n dot com, and so um, you can actually order the book there too. But um, so there's lots of avenues to get the book. Yeah. You know, I also, as you recall, it's, you know, very dated now, but I also wrote a book a few years ago. And the idea that I wanted to share with you is that I actually wrote a grant proposal to purchase some of my books to be in shelters and DV organizations for women to just have. Oh, that's a great idea. I should have done that. And I would like to share that idea with you because this sounds like a great book uh, for women who are at the point where they're seeking help. Right. Yeah, send that to me in an email if you would. I would love to get that information of where exactly you went to do that. Sure. I can't remember who who, it was a a local uh, organization that provided the funding, but we ended up getting – Oh gosh, I can't remember. Like twenty five books per per shelter or per organization, something like that. You know, that the organization idea. paid for it. So because yeah. and and then I always I always did a thing where if you buy my book, great. Don't sell the used book. Pass it on. Just please pass it on. Yeah, know, and I say this when I tell mothers, like at the last conference I was at, and I'm getting ready to go to the IVAT conference in September, which is a great conference, and it's about fourteen hundred people, but it's lots of professionals coming in worldwide and. I, I really get a lot of information and knowledge there myself. And um, what I like to tell people is, you know what, buy it for a judge. You know, you, you want to read it, fine. You don't, you, you're done reading it. Give it to a judge. Give it to a, a friend that knows a judge. Yeah. You know, let's, let's, or, or, or an attorney or whatever, but let's get this out there. And, you know, I, I'm not doing this to make money because obviously I'm not making money at this, but I am doing this to make a difference. So if, if we all went together and got this out there so people could understand what's happening, that's another part of this, part of helping of what's happening. And what you did, exactly. like the domestic shelter, is a great idea. I like to see it going to every law school. So these young attorneys yeah. get this and they understand before they get out to be a judge or before they go into family court, um, please, all of them, it's just, it's just a situation that needs to hit everywhere. And it's time. It's time. It's past oh, time. Time's up. For this time. <laughs> Part of the new yep, movement. Exactly. It's all of it. Marilee, it's the book is Prosecuted But Not Silenced by Marilee McLean. And if you want to go to her website and learn more about the book, it's M-A-R-A-L-E-E-M-C, capital L-E-A-N, dot com. And I recommend the book very highly. Marilee, thank you so so much for joining us once again. Oh, Thank absolutely. you, and all oh, success nice for you with, you with the book. It's it's okay, a message that needs to be out there, and I'll email you about right, applying for a grant. Women need to have this book, and uh, yes. and you know what? Maybe all we women. should uh, maybe we should give it to some men too, as well as the the court decision makers and the lawyers. Let's just put it in everybody's Christmas stocking this year. Does that sound like a good idea? <laughs> yeah. Pre- 
great idea. Okay. Let's get it out. All right. All right. All right. Take Take care once again. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for listening on Three Women, Three Ways. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.